Welcome to our first edition of The Third Wheel for 2022, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. I'm Tim Stutt, ESG Lead for Australia and partner in our corporate practice. I'm joined by Mel Debenham, partner in our Environment, Planning and Communities practice. This episode, we're excited to have with us Silke Goldberg, our Global Head of ESG and Lead for our Climate Change practice. Silke is an extremely well-credentialed third wheel and one I've been looking forward to as she's going to be sharing her reflections on the COP26 conference now that we're a few months on. And she'll also be giving her thoughts on future directions as well. Thanks for joining us, Silke. Hello, good morning. Or good afternoon, depending on your time zone. Bit of both, actually, I guess. Silke, we generally start these episodes with a personal reflection and like to ask our guests why ESG is important to them and what it means to them as well. So, in your own words, we'd be really keen for your thoughts. Thank you, Tim. And you're starting with a big one, really, because for me, ESG, environment, social and governance aspects are really the absolute core of how we do business or how we should do business. So it is at the same time a way of doing business, but it's also an outlook out of uh, on society rather. So how are companies situating themselves in society and how they're interacting with society? So it's basically how co companies look at how, how do they interact with stakeholders, customers, employees, suppliers, communities and shareholders all together and how companies um, interact with society is to me an absolute core and ESG summarizes this and um, in a really sort of pithy abbreviation. However, it is also more than zeitgeist. So there was a survey done or sort of uh, a, uh, a study, I think it was McKinsey who looked at um, ESG investment and ESG investment or sustainable investment, how it's often termed, now tops more than I think 30 trillion dollars which is huge and then had a huge uptake um, since uh, the certainly the noughties and uh, the uh, the 2010s as well. So ESG is a lot more than zeitgeist. It is business sense and it is an outlook on society in summary. I think that's a, that's a way of framing it which really resonates with me because when I think about the ESG issues that we help clients with, a lot of it is helping them understand and deal with their impact in different areas, whether that be environment or labour rights. Mm -hmm. But also there is a big part around helping them meet stakeholder expectations or broader societal expectations. I think when we look at some of the ESG crises, it's where they've really misjudged that, that societal piece as well. Completely agree. We might move to the COP26 conference. Uh, mm -hmm. I know many people were disappointed by the softer language landed on in the outcomes of the conference. For example, the phasing down rather than phasing out of unabated coal power. And the media certainly had a, a lot of fun with the good cop, bad cop and cop out puns, which we'll try and avoid in this conversation. But I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts on COP26 now that you've had a few months to digest the agreements reached and give a bit of thought to how things might pan out from here. Thank you, Tim, and I will avoid any sort of cop pans. Sort of, um, <laughs> um, here we go. So um, 
I think the initial disappointment, let's start with the bad news first, and then there's some good news, and I will come to that. So I think perhaps the bad news was, or the disappointment was, that the emission reduction pledges in Glasgow, as they are at the moment, are projected to lead to a warming of about 2.4 degrees Celsius, which is well above the 1.4 degrees Celsius aim of the Paris Agreement. Um, that's the first thing. So there is a cl clear discrepancy with between Paris and where we are at the moment. And COP26 didn't really do an, an awful lot to reduce that particular gap. Then from the perspective of developing countries, um, it was quite disappointing to see that the um, target, the 2020 target for annually available finance to support developing countries, climate adaptation and mitigation um, measures was missed in that at the moment, the, this target stands at $100 billion annually for such measures. And at the moment, that is just an aim because it hasn't actually materialized. And a third point, and I will stop with the negatives after that, uh, was that there was no notable progress on what is called loss and damage. The loss and damage mechanism was designed at the Warsaw COP um, to really be the main vehicle to avert, minimise and address loss and damage associated with climate change impacts. So, for instance, extreme weather events, slow onset events, sort of um, something that is really important um, all over the world, but specifically in developing countries which are most exposed to climate change and the consequences thereof. However, looking back, there were also a number of positives. And I think in summary, there were probably five or so or five categories of, of positive outcomes. The first one, we do have the Glasgow Pact, the Glasgow Climate Pact. Um, there, were, there were a lot of doubts during the conference as to whether or not a written agreement would emerge at the end. As you know, the conference had to go into overtime. Secondly, there was or what the conference achieved was the finalisation of outstanding elements of the Paris rulebook which was looked toward, sort of looked forward to by quite a few different stakeholders. Thirdly, we have an agreement now to accelerate efforts to a phase down. And I know I note the disappointment in, uh, around the phase down and phase out language, but there is an agreement to accelerate efforts to phase down of unabated coal um, and also a phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Fourthly, developed or industrialized countries are being urged to at least double their climate finance commitments um, against the benchmark of 2019 by 2025. And, and this is slightly outside the um, COP26 process, we saw a number of coalitions between different states who gave additional pledges. So, for instance, the methane and deforestation pledges, and both of which were supported by large groups of states. So almost you could say it was a COP of two speeds. You had the core of formal and official COP that sort of um, ended with the Glasgow Climate Pact, which was a bit so-so perhaps in terms of the desired outcome. But then you had a plethora of additional pledges by states who made additional and further efforts and uh, sort of um, results. I, I wonder if we might loop back to what you were saying about the Paris rulebook and, and hear a little bit more about that. You know, it's something which has been in the works for a little while and much debated and much delayed. Um, what do you see the path looking like from here as the rulebook hopefully gets implemented and put into life? 
Okay. The Paris rulebook really centers around visions for a global carbon market. This is Article 6 in the Paris Agreement and Article 13 in the Paris Agreement, which centers on transparency rules. So Article 6 of the Paris Agreement um, relates to the development of an international carbon market. Carbon markets are generally seen as the vehicle to accelerate um, climate change measures. Um, and uh, here, the Glasgow Climate Pact uh, had three separate pieces of, um, of guidance, I suppose. So the guidance relates to new a new framework under Article 6, which for the first time will compromise or com comprise a centralised system for which is, will be open to the public and the private sectors, a, a separate bilateral system that will allow countries to trade credits that they can use to help meet their decarbonisation targets. However, the guidance is a little bit ambiguous, so I don't immediately see the jumping into action of a global um, global carbon market, but some progress was made. So I don't know, Tim and Melanie, how technical you want to get on all of these things, but uh, let's say we have guidance on cooperative approaches for an international carbon market. And this is basically countries cooperating with one another um, in a bilateral system relating to internationally transferred mitigation outcomes called ITMOS. There's no international conference without abbreviations, and uh, certainly this was uh, one of the key abbreviations um, for uh, in Glasgow. And ITMOs basically include emission reductions that have not yet been claimed for the achievement of a host country's nationally determined contribution in NDC. So this means that it is in addition to what the country is doing already. So there's a certain amount of additionality that is required for that. And the framework for this cooperative approach under Article 6.2 um, is basically a framework that includes annual, biannual reporting requirements. It also includes an Article 6 database that will be set up, a centralised accounting and reporting platform. So really sort of it sort of sets the foundations for a large international carbon market. This is so without sort of all of these elements, you can't really establish such a market. Just playing that back, what I'm hearing is that we have the framework for deepening the carbon markets, but we don't necessarily yet have detailed rules for totally implementing it. Would that be a fair? Yes. So, I mean, it's fair to say we have sort of three big elements or three big pillars, if you wish. We have the cooperative approach, which has the ITMOS, which I've tried mm -hmm. to explain just now. Then we have separately, and this is established by Article 6.4, we have rules, modalities and procedures for, um, for uh, a global carbon market, which are a little bit scammed at the moment. And then thirdly, we have sort of under Glasgow, we have on the Glasgow Climate Pact, we have a work programme for the framework for non-market approaches. So it is a little bit of a mixed bag. It gets incredibly technical. I've just sort of dipped the toe into Article 6.2 with the ITMOS earlier, but um, sort of Article 6.4 is certainly the next one that is um, required to be filled with a little bit more life in order to see in future, to see the establishment of a future carbon market. Silke, um, you know, working with a lot of companies in Australia, um, they're very keen to see the opening up of a global market just because of the pressure on um, credits within um, our domestic regime. 
um, and the growing importance of them really from an approvals perspective. So I'm going to ask you an impossible question. Um, if you'll indulge us in a little crystal ball gazing, what kind of time frame do you foresee for um, an operative truly global carbon market? And are we going to get there? Hmm. Let's, this is, okay. Um, Sometimes, can I propose to your future sort of crystal ball gazing, can I propose some time travel as an answer? Yes. Um, backwards. So, because look, at, we now, in, for the Kyoto Protocol, when it came into force, um, there were a number of years which were trying and sort of by try and error trying to set up uh, carbon trading or assigned amounts, uh, assigned amounts unit trading um, as between signatory states to the Kyoto Protocol. Really what we had is it took about hmm, four or five years for the fundamentals to be in place. And then from 2007 to 2012, so five years in the first commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol, where states but also companies could gather experience as to how sort of a carbon trade system might work internationally. So in addition, since then, what we have seen in many parts of the world, in China, in the European Union, in parts of the United States and Canada, but also in Korea and Japan, is the establishment of emission trading systems as a baseline for their for their climate commitments and climate efforts. Building on all of that now, I think once the rule book in relation to Paris has been clarified, which I very much hope will be the case at COP27 later this year in Sharm el-Sheikh, um, once that is clarified, I think we have now so much technical background information as to how these systems work and what are design faults, what are advantages of certain types of, of designs, that I would be hopeful that this could be put into place reasonably quickly. Um, and it's been a long time coming. So I think the, I suppose, the wheels that need to fall into, sort of the, the cogs that need to fall into place are not so much of a technical nature, they're political. If the political will is there globally, and I can, I'm assuming it is there, given all the many um, emission trading systems around the world that have now been established, then I'm actually optimistic that something could be put into place reasonably quickly. I love the optimism. And let's hope at this juncture there is that political will, right, Tim? <laughs> yeah, correct. Talking to clients about um, investment, there is quite a lot of excitement around the prospect of deeper carbon markets, as well as the emphasis coming out of um, some of some of the COP discussions around nature capital and biodiversity. There was also, as you mentioned, the um, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which which um, uh, came out uh, sort of on the sidelines of the conference, which was the $133 trillion US pledged to net zero financing and investment. When you think about the private sector, what do you see as the most exciting opportunities for companies in 2022 and looking looking forward from here? It's a really good question. So, um, and I actually think there is so much excitement. I, I, I would echo what you said about the excitement in the private sector. Over the past couple of years, I've spoken to so many different companies around the world who are looking to invest in really cre creative solutions, actually. So to um, either offset, minimize or avoid carbon emissions in, in many different ways. Um, 
And, and this is exciting also because I think it is now recognised that climate change is a task for each and every one of us. And that in relation to companies that very often translates in innovative investment opportunities. We sort of in part, we've seen this in Glasgow with the Net Zero Alliance and with which you've already mentioned and the vast sums that were pledged there. Um, but coming back really to the very first question that you said in relation to ESG, I think there's for private companies, there's everything to play for, because if you marry sort of the ESG outlook on society with the potential of carbon markets and the investment opportunities that arise out of this, private companies have absolutely everything to play for in this area. So I would predict that um, we will see a lot more investment in renewable technologies uh, in relation to electricity generation. Um, here we see, I think, the European Union being a leader with the Fit for 55 programme, sort of 55% of uh, sort of renewables as part of the overall energy mix um, and, and more. And we're also seeing similar efforts elsewhere in the world, sort of for sometimes state driven, sometimes uh, uh, private company driven. Um, we're seeing companies looking at ways to offset embodied or built in carbon in the real estate uh, sector. We've spoken to a number of clients who are looking to invest in woodlands, nature-based solutions, all sorts of other sort of um, green offset opportunities or perhaps uh, investment opportunities. We're also looking at innovative ways to design cities. So for instance, they, and this is sort of where climate climate change and climate mitigation comes together. So, for instance, the number of cities uh, to, who together with private investors are looking at the concept of sponge cities, how to design cities for the future. Again, a huge amount of investment opportunity. And uh, that's something that is to be welcomed, I think. With all that excitement in the private sector, the investment opportunities you've touched on, um, as well as your optimism, Silka, on the establishment of a global carbon market, I guess it's all eyes on COP27 to be held in um, the beachside resort of Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt, which will no doubt attract many more private jets and um, many, much more need for, for offsets. But um, do you have any predictions or foresee better outcomes from COP26? And is there anything that is important to be thinking about now um, to be put on the agenda for our next conference? Oh, there's lots of big questions this morning. So I think that sort of for Sharm El Sheikh in uh, November this year, I think, again, all eyes are on the Paris rulebook. We need more flesh on the bones, as it were, more detail in order to see the establishment of a global carbon market. And I think Sharm El Sheikh will hopefully pick up where the Glasgow Climate Pact left off by, in the first instance, addressing those areas that were not fully covered in Glasgow and that were um, perhaps left a little bit short in Glasgow. So, for instance, the uh, 100 billion uh, annual finance, available finance to support developing countries' climate change, um, adaptation and mitigation efforts, hopefully will be addressed in full in Sharm el-Sheikh. I also hope that loss and damage will be addressed in more detail in Sharm el-Sheikh, as well as, as I said earlier, the sort of implementation of the Paris rulebook in relation to carbon markets um, will hopefully uh, advance a lot more. Um, but these are just sort of the, I suppose, the 
the the legal outcomes or the the touchable outcomes, the tangible outcomes. What I actually think COP26 has done to some extent, uh, certainly in the UK, you could feel it in terms of how the, the press was looking at it, sort of the commentaries, there was real excitement around it. And I'm hoping that Sharm el-Sheikh can pick up on that and that excitement will translate into an anchoring of consciousness around climate change, mitigation, adaptation, climate change more generally. And I hope that as a result, climate change will not just be sort of a focal point every year when there is the COP, but it will really sort of integrate into um, the way business is done, the way policy is uh, sort of undertaken, really sort of to link up again with the first question, what is ESG? That sort of it becomes an integral part of that and uh, it becomes an outlook on how and how we all do business. Because in my view, the future is ESG, and that includes climate conscious, or it will not, sort of, or it will not be. So with, without ESG, I think we will be in deep trouble, all of us in different ways. So, um, and Melanie, that's also the um, the source of my optimism, that uh, sort of the knowledge around the centrality of climate change efforts and ESG more broadly is such that uh, we absolutely need it. Um, so, and that I'm hoping that this, the realisation of that uh, will, will take hold. Look, at Tim and I both hope your predictions come true. Um, we will absolutely be looping back to you um, around COP27 time um, and hopefully, you know, see that anchoring and level of ambition really escalate. Um, so thank you so much for your time and sharing those observations with us. It was fantastic. Now, um, in 2022, we are going to close the podcast as we did in 2021 with an interesting or quirky fact from the world of ESG. Um, I mentioned private jets before, but um, it'll be electric cars this time. In Western Australia, we are soon going to have Australia's longest electric highway. Um, we'll have 45 charging stations between Esperance in the south and Kununurra in the north. We're very proud of um, <laughs> this announcement in Western Australia, but if we're talking electric vehicles, um, like many things ESG-related, Europe is really leading the way, um, not us here domestically. And so much, in fact, that sales of electric cars overtook diesel models for the first time in December 2021. I think it's probably indicative of what we're seeing from consumers more broadly, Tim. Um, conscious choices are continuing to be made around emissions reduction um, Silka mentioned ESG being companies' interactions with society, but I wonder if these stats start to speak to society's interaction with companies, um, that hip pocket desire for low emissions. Um, more than a fifth of new cars sold across 18 European markets were powered exclusively by batteries. This is according to data compiled for the Financial Times. Um, while diesel cars, and this includes diesel hybrids, accounted for less than 19% of sales. Electric sales have been steadily rising thanks to government subsidies in a number of company, uh, countries like Germany, as well as strict regulations. And so I think we um, will expect to see those numbers rising. Now, if you listen to um, all of those stats and the natural question is, well, what did we see in Australia? Um, Regrettably, not such a huge um, uptick in electric, electric vehicles, but we're getting there. So in the first half of 2021, there were 8,688 electric vehicles sold. Um, 
so probably accounting for a little bit less than 1% of all vehicles sold in Australia. Anyway, we've got some way, a way to go, but if you're listening and you've got kids and you've seen the Tesla do the Tesla dance, um, you'll probably also have a little bit of family pressure <laughs> around getting the cool car on the block for your next purchase. So we'll round out uh, the podcast today on that note. Um, thanks again, Silka, for joining us and for listening in. We look forward to you joining us next time. Thanks very much for having me. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.